you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And uh, we are going to pick up where we left off last week, where twice Paul and Silas and Timothy and now Luke, who physically joins them, have been hindered in sharing the gospel. The Lord stopped them to going to Asia. And uh, he did that twice, and now we are going to see where God encourages and assists and promotes his will. And we're going to find that this is the very last thing that Paul would envision after he received a vision from the Lord. We're going to pick up in verse 11. So putting out to sea from Tros, he ran straight course to Samthras. And on the day following to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, about a 10 mile walk to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. By the way, this is the only time Luke takes the time to tell us that this is a Roman colony, even though they went to many of them. And there is a reason why, and we'll pull that out in a moment. And we, are, we were staying in this city for some days and on the sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and we began speaking to women who had assembled a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics a worshipper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul and when she and her household had been baptized, she, she urged us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And men, we all feel the force of this in our own lives, these last few words. And this woman prevailed upon me and convinced me to stay at her home. And with that, let's open God's word and uh, we will walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that you reign over everything. You reign over all things, Lord. May all the people of this earth tremble at your power, your authority, Lord, you are enthroned above the cherubims. May all this earth shake. Lord, you are great in your holy temple. You are exalted over all peoples in all nations, all governments, all shepherds, all rulers. And we praise your great and awesome name, for you alone are holy. Father, if anything I am about to teach is not your will, I ask that you would silence my voice. Father, if it is aligned with your will, give me strength. Give me courage and give me love. Father, my one prayer is that the sermon this morning would be the meaning of the text. We ask for one thing this morning, Christ, 
Forgive us for choosing our churches based on whether we like the music or we, we relate to the pastor. Father, may we be part of your bride because we love you. You are our king, not our appetites. We love you, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit be our teacher. May we laugh. May we cry. May we shake. And may we be encouraged at the truth of your word. And Father, we pray these things in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say something. Very good. That is not how I pictured it. How many here have ever said that in your head, out loud, or even today? Anyone at all? That is not how I envision things to go. That is exactly what we are going to see here in this passage. Last week we looked at some general applications on how to identify the silent will of God in our lives. We called it the yellow will of God, the traffic sign there. And how, how simple life would be if everything was, was green, yes, this is the will of God, and red, no, this is not the will of God. And we talked about, you remember that young man, his face went up there and the Lord just stamped him, no, for all the young ladies? That would be wonderful. But we talked about how to identify the yellow areas, the silent areas. Twice now, Paul was stopped from sharing the gospel in certain regions. And then the Lord told him to go to Macedonia. And when you see or hear the word Macedonia there, I want you to think Europe. We talked last week about how there are times when God will reveal his silent will in our lives through frustrating our own human efforts. But boy, oh boy, that does not mean that God does not have a will for us in our lives. And when God's will is fully realized and we submit and obey it, hear this, my friends, not only are we subject to his will, not only will nothing stop the will of God, but God will enable that to happen in ways we could not even imagine. This is not how I pictured it. Allow me to illustrate this by using the text Paul wanted to go to Asia, the Holy Spirit stopped him. Then he wanted to go to Bethnia, and the, spirits, the Spirit of Jesus stopped him again. Then God told him to go to Macedonia, and rather than being stopped, rather than being hindered, and we talked about how that may have happened, rather than being hindered, Paul was propelled by the providential box fan of God. And when I say that, I'm not trying to be cute. I mean, literally and figuratively, he was propelled by the box fan of God. Allow me to show you this in the text. So after setting sail from Tros, he ran straight course to Samothrace. This phrase here, he ran straight course, is within the original, it's a nautical term. It is a sailing term or expression that if we translated it roughly today, would sound a little bit like man of living, the wind was at our backs. So strong was this wind that they went 156 miles in two days. Now, that's rather quickly. Especially when we find that the return trip from the same location back to the same location in Acts chapter 20 verse 6, we find that it took five days to sail the same distance on their return trip. I want you for a moment to allow the text to not just be 
all right, nor should we ever want it to be just an academic book, but a real live living document. And these are real living people. I want you to see the face of Paul as he rips through the water at sustained speeds that may be outside of his sense of peace. Rather than being hindered, he is hurried. This is not just an open window, it is an open wind tunnel. And, and if I may pause for a moment, I would love to give you a little fun fact here about the, the doctor historian Luke who is writing here. And all those in favor of learning something neat about his personality, say amen. It's fun to learn about these guys since they teach us so much. As you read through the book of Acts, we see here is that Luke has a fascination with sailing. Love, Luke either loved or, it was one of the extremes, he either loved to sail or he hated to sail because when he writes about sailing, he constantly gives us unbelievable details of the trip from wind conditions, which we see here straight in the background. We flew across the water to specific ports, to descriptions of the voyages with complete details on the time it took and almost always the weather conditions when they did sail. You find that in Acts 16, Acts 20, Acts 21, Acts 27, and multiple verses in between that. The fact that Luke could draw back on such details of every trip tells us that he likely kept a sailing journal when he moved forward. Now let us remember some of the expectations as they skip across the water 156 miles in two days. Paul was given a vision. Now I want you to answer this, and it's not, it's not rhetorical, so feel free to answer this. He was given a vision, and there in that vision, he was looking for a what? Talk to me. I will not move forward. A man. Thank you, Paul. He was looking for a man as he went. All right? In fact, we find that in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. A man from Macedonia was standing and pleading with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So with the wind-burned face of Paul, Paul staggers into Macedonia, into Philippi, looking for a man, at least consistent with the vision here. And that man mysteriously looks a lot like Mark Hurd. Look at that right there. I'm teasing. I'm sorry. I, Mark, are you in here at all? Mark, are you in here at all? Oh, there you are. I took my, this is my wisdom. I took my glasses off to look for Mark. There you are. He was looking for Mark Hurd, all right? He had had a vision. Now, I didn't get permission for that. Is that okay? All right. You're better looking than that. Um... <laughs> So from the port of Neapolis, they get off the boat and they walk about 10 miles inland to Philippi, which was a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. Now, I can't speak with certainty, but if I were to, as a human being, think a little bit like Paul, he would be looking for something or anything that resembled the vision he was given by the Lord. And he looked for days. And as he looked and he stayed there for days, he found he, he, he was not able to find maybe exactly what he was looking for. We know that to be true so far. Hence the words, we were spending some days in that city. Now, if you had been frustrated twice, stopped with your good intentions to serve the Lord, 
then blown across the sea like a styrofoam cup on a windy day, and you finally get where you were told to be by a vision of Mark Hurd saying, you need to come here and share the gospel, you are going to be looking for what you thought you were told to find. But days go by, and he doesn't. Finally, finally the Sabbath day comes. The Sabbath day comes. And if you're going to find some Jewish men in in the European Macedonian city of Philippi, it's going to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. But there's one major problem. Philippi does not have a synagogue. It does not have a synagogue. Which brings up two questions. Why doesn't it have a synagogue? And what do Jewish people do when there is no synagogue to worship and pray and read the prophets on Sabbath day? Well, there's a very, very small Jewish population in the city of Philippi at this time. After all, he is far outside of Israel's boundaries into Macedonia and Europe. So small was the Jewish population that there were not enough Jewish men to even start a synagogue. You see, back in this day and age, according to Jewish tradition, a synagogue could only be established in the city if there were at least ten men who were head of households present in that city. Nine men? Can't. Ten men? Yes. Time to establish a synagogue. This is a culture very different from our own. So what do you do? When you are a Jewish person and there is no synagogue, what are you to do? Now, according to the Mishnah, all right, according to the Mishnah, it says this right here. Faithful Jews, if there were no synagogue, were expected to meet outside of the city under the open sky next to the nearest river and sea deep enough to be immersed in. Now, that's an important little detail that's going to pop out of this passage as we slowly drift towards the application that ought to change the way we approach our own faith and apply it in the church. This was codified in the Mishnah, all right, in their teaching to instruct faithful dispersed Jews on how to find each other on the Sabbath, even in the most remote places. This Jewish detail pops right out of the text when you see here. He went outside of the gate to the riverside. Look at the Mishnah. He went outside the gate to the riverside where we were thinking that there was supposed to be a place of prayer. Now, in the original Greek here, and I love how C.H. Linsky approaches this. He says this literally translated means this, where a place of prayer was supposed to be. So we went outside to the gate to the riverside, which the Mishnah codified so we could find one another in the event we are dispersed in a place that does not have a synagogue. Is everyone following me on this detail? Anyone at all? Okay. How many here remember life before cell phones? Anyone at all? Life before cell phones. Let me push it. Life before internet. Anyone at all? Life before cordless phones. Life before a hundred and foot, a hundred foot uh, cord that, that attached that would go into someone's room so they could have a little privacy. This is well before all of that. Before cell phones, everywhere you went with someone, whether it be the mall, whether it be anywhere, the grocery store, if you were separated for any reason, i.e., dispersed Jewish population, if you were separated for any reason, 
You had to have, even in the 70s, 80s, and and, and into the early 90s, and 60s and 50s and all the way back, you had to have, talk to me, if you were in the mall and you were going to split up, you need to have a what? Talk to me. A meeting place and what? A time. Because if you didn't predetermine a meeting place and a time, you risked never seeing that person again. That were the stakes, folks, all right? Or you had to do the dreaded aisle walk. How many here are old enough to remember this? Make sure we miss them there. Okay, and you do this. And if the dreaded aisle walk or the purgatory of searching the mall didn't happen, then came the dreaded PA announcement. How many here have ever had to be on the PA announcement? Anyone at all? You, Jennifer, this week? All right. It's like... You know, I'll use Jennifer. Jennifer, your husband is at the customer service center. He is weeping uncontrollably. Or worse, it's your, your, your child. You are the worst parent on the planet. We are calling child protective services. Note, there was no child protective services. We're slightly off subject. It was a miracle that any kids born before the 1980s ever made it to adulthood. And all of God's people said what? Oh, oh, you frustrate me. All right, I'm teasing. (laughs) Not really. We had no supervision. We sucked on lead paint chips. We had games that were sold in stores that were literally, literally deadly. How many here remember lawn jarts? Anyone at all? These were knives weighted down with wings on them that you threw up in the air at your friend and you had to hit a circle like this as you stood like this. And it blew our minds that people were dying at this. Anyway, back to a meeting place, Mishnah. Remember going to the mall? You needed to separate, get all your errands done, so you... Agreed to meet back. Now just listen to these nostalgic places, all right? If you are a certain age, you won't even know what these places are, but many of you will. You had to agree on a meeting place and a time. So you'd say, hey, let's, at the mall, let's meet at the kids' play area next to the sunglass hut at 8.30 p.m. So one of you went to Sears or Roebuck and Company, then to Radio Shack and to Toys R Us, and the other would drop the VCR you rented and the copy of Jaws you waited nine months to rent. You then took your film to the Kodak store where you had to decide whether or not you were going to pay the premium for one-hour development or return days later just to pick it up. This is why there are literally no photos of kids born prior to 1980. My family used one roll of film a year. That's 12 pictures, folks. I have one pic of me as a child, and I am in the background. I'm not even the focal point of the picture. My mom needed one more pic of Tequanonim Falls, and I wandered into the frame. And I quote, from the the, the one who bore me, you ruined the picture. You have it so good. Back to the text. 
Before cell phones, you had to agree upon a meeting place, a time where you could find one another. This is what's going on here in the Jewish community outside of Israel in a Macedonian area of the city of Philippi. If you were a dispersed Jew in a foreign land, separated and far from home, you were to meet at the sunglass hut nearest the kids' play area or... I may say it a little bit more accurately, nearest river outside of town in the open sky on the Sabbath. So what does Paul do? Well, Paul does what he is told to do, what he knows to do. He heads to the river one mile out of town. Here's a question. Here's a question I want you to answer. As he heads out there, what is Paul looking for? What sex is he looking for? Talk to me. He's looking for a man. What does he find? This is not how I pictured this going. There were some women who assembled. The fact that only women are mentioned here tells us just how small the Jewish community we have been at this time. Now let us remember Paul's upbringing. He is a student, a Pharisee, of one of the most famous Pharisees in all of history, Gamaliel. You find that in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. As a young Pharisee, by Gamaliel, he would have been taught and prayed very often, I thank God that I am not a Gentile, I am not a slave, and I am not a woman. How many here would say, that just seems like a welcoming environment? Anyone at all? Paul's about to talk to a Gentile woman. And the next person will be a slave. I want you to grab this here. Paul had a vision of a man calling for help. He got there and found a small group of women gathered by the river and a, and a Gentile will become his first convert, a Gentile woman. And the next convert in the next passage that we'll study next week is a slave girl possessed by a demon. Here's the point. Paul is going to cross all social, traditional, and ecclesiastical burials here. A slave, a Gentile, and a woman. Here is my point. When we obey God's will, the reality of his work does not always match our romantic vision of it. In fact, rarely does it. Rarely does it. Have you ever said the words, this is not what I was expecting God would do? So the man from Macedonia vision turns out to be a Gentile woman. And look at what the gospel has done to the Pharisaic heart of Paul. It simply does not matter to him. He says he sat down and he began speaking to this Gentile woman that he was thankful he wasn't born one. Now I want you to highlight something here that is often missed. And by the way, it will make some of us uncomfortable. And it will make us uncomfortable in both directions. Whether you are more... Uh, inflexible or um, um, not inflexible. What's the word I'm looking? Whether you are whether you are more liberal in this area or more conservative in this area, what I'm about to bring up may make us uncomfortable because we are so saturated by the culture in which we live. But our desire is not to image or reflect the culture. Our job and our responsibility and hopefully our passion is to reflect Christ in the culture. Amen. That's our goal. That's our calling. Now, with that being said, this may make us feel uncomfortable, but here we go. Whether we realize it or not, this is the beginning of the church in Philippi. This is where the book of Philippians will go. Do you think for a moment when Paul saw his vision of a man in Macedonia that the church he will begin to plant would start with a group of Gentile women? Yet this is how God has chosen to begin the church in Europe. And it is not how he pictured it. 
You know, women often have a key role in Paul's work. You'll see it in Acts 17 and in chapter 18 and verses 12, 34, and 2. So let me say this quickly and let me say this clearly. The Bible makes it clear that men and women are created equal. But the Bible teaches us that men and women have different roles, whether it be in the home or it be in the church. This is a term that is called complementarianism within the Word of God. The teaching that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God. I want you to press that truth against our culture today. We can't even answer the question, what is a woman? Because the enemy wants chaos. Because it is in chaos that you can cause the most change. Our God is a God of order. He ordained men and women. And that and what a, what a shame it is in our culture that that sentence alone is considered hate speech. It's not. It's love. It's truth. We are ordained by God to be men and women created to complement or complete one another. Isn't that good that man be alone? We see this borne out in the church. You have elders who are to be godly men. You have deacons that, that, and I'll touch on that in a moment, or in the home, you have husbands and wives, equal in value, different in roles. And some of us are going, I don't like this. Here's something in love. It doesn't matter if you like it. Just as much for the other side. I don't know why I'm in this pose, but it hurts. All right? Is it going to like the rest of what I'm going to say? But I want to tell you something. If God's word is not making you uncomfortable, if God's word is not stretching you, if God's word is making you and you not learning, it might be because you're not learning anything anymore and we're more more in love with a culture around it than the Christ in it. I have no idea where I am in my notes, so I'm going to make some stuff up here. All right, now, to complete one another. Complementarianism in many ways reflects the very character and nature of our God. Our God is three in one. Equal yet what? Different and distinct. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, it just comes out and says this. I want you to understand that the head of every man and woman ever born in all of creation, the head of every man is Christ. He is the authority. By the way, He's the authority whether you, whether you are His child or not. He is your authority. And the head of the wife is the husband and the head of Christ is God. Now with that being said, those are the truths found within the Word of God. Church, the Bible teaches that godly men who meet 1 Timothy 3 qualifications are to be elders in the church. They are to represent the spiritual authority in the church under the headship of Jesus Christ and his word. Now bear with me, because now we're going to irritate the other side, because I'm not doing my job until everyone's mad at me. That's where I find peace. When everyone's throwing stones, I'm like, you're welcome, Lord. All right? Now... Let's go to the other side. Yet Paul will use women to start the church in Philippi. Even though he could have raised a string of traditional cultural and personal objections. 
You know, a lot of times we marvel, if not judge, the ancient Jewish community, and even the contemporary one, for creating many roles or rules around the Scriptures, i.e. the Mishnah. Many rules around the Scripture. But the truth of the matter is, we, say, we share the same heart as, as men and women thousands of years ago as we do today. We do the very same thing. We put rules around the Word of God as well. And since the topic here is women at, at the river, let us not avoid it. Like, here we go. Sometimes, because of our desire to protect biblical complementarianism, and you now know what that means, we tend to want to create extra biblical boundaries that help protect that precept. We start to codify our own little Baptist Mishnah. In order to protect God's order, we are going to create so much red tape over here that no one can ever get to it. We want to create extra biblical boundaries to protect that precept. Are you following me here at all, where I'm going? Even judging people who cross our personally made protective barriers, rationalizing that our protective barriers in our efforts are a way to avoid a slippery slope. I am so tired of being afraid of slippery slopes. Can I get a witness at all? I understand the concern. My friends, in our desire to avoid slippery slopes in the church, we often stray into areas that are far more dangerous, like here it is, being unbiblical. Here's what I want to note. We should not seek to artificially suppress the role of women in our lives and in the church in the name of protecting other biblical precepts. Now I'm highlighting artificially suppress. And here's how I want to define it. And this was very hard for me to wordsmith. So I'm asking you to hear what I'm trying to say. Hear what I mean here. Here's a question. In our desire to maintain the biblical role of male elders and pastors, have we been guilty of artificially putting up fences outside of that office that restrict women from roles in ministries the Bible does not prohibit? Romans chapter 16, Phoebe was a deacon. I know, there's no way around it. She was a deacon. And not only was she a deacon, but Paul gave her the highest honor of delivering, um, I've got to remember, my my brain is failing here, of, of, of delivering the book of Romans to the church in Rome. Now Paul wrote the book of Romans, and it was inspired of God. And it was going to become part of the canon. It was going to deliver truth by which saints will, 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 will form their theology around for all of history. It is the very breath of God. And there's no Xerox machine. There is no photocopy. There is no cell phone. There is a, there is one copy. Who are you sending? Who are you sending to deliver that priceless, high, honor of delivering that to the church. Who are you bringing? They chose Phoebe to bring this. Sometimes I wonder if the church today would do that. 
Here we have that in, 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 the, in Philippi that the church is going to begin through the conversion of some women. So let me just say this in love and truth. There is nothing biblical. There is nothing honorable. There is nothing spiritual. There is nothing noble in artificially suppressing the role of women in the name of avoiding slippery slopes. If you want to protect the Bible, this is going to blow our minds, especially as Baptists, of whom I love, and because I am one, no, see, I'm a Christian that attends a Baptist church, but because my membership's here, I get to pick on them, amen? It's kind of like, you can mock your brother and sister, but no one else can. I'm not here to mock. It's going to blow our minds. If we want to be biblical, if we want to protect the Bible, here it is, buckle up, let's be biblical. Now, people may say, Pastor, I feel like this is getting a little liberal. I can feel the slippery slope. No. Oh, great. Now we're going ultra-conservative, and I can feel the shackles on my arms. No. I, I don't want to be either to be tell you the truth. I want to be biblical. I want us to be biblical in our love for Christ. Let us expire in exhaustion trying to be biblical rather than thrive in the ease of quasi-theology. Here should be our hearts. Give us the Lord. Give us his word, not the culture we built around him. So why bring this up here? How does this apply to the text? Oh, it just blows it up in a good way. In a good way. The gospel seed that started the church in Philippi took root in the heart of a Gentile woman and a demon-possessed slave girl because Paul allowed God's word, not the culture he came from, of fear and slippery slopes to be his authority. Now, I want you to look at one more thing. Bring that with you and dump it into these few verses. A woman named Lydia was listening from the city of Thyatira. Now, Philippi was a very wealthy city. It was a retirement land, really, a Roman colony, where Roman soldiers would retire and they would be given large throths of land. By the way, It was the Florida of the ancient world. There were no taxes to Rome gathered there. And they got a lot of land. They got a lot of money and they didn't have to pay taxes. By the way, Roman senators and politicians would... How many here, if they said, hey, when you retire, there is a land set aside where there are no taxes and you get free large chunks of land as your retirement. How many here are going? How many here are staying in Michigan? Anyone at all? Not only that, but Philippi Philippi was known for having large deposits of gold, copper, and silver. So wealthy is this area that later in the book of Philippians, Paul thanks the church for giving large financial support in a time where churches were not known for having money. This is a wealthy place. It is well settled here. She was a seller of purple fabrics. Purple clothes are expensive. Only rich and royal people could afford them. We find that in Luke 16, verse 19. What is Philippi full of? Talk to me, church. Wealthy, royal people who don't have to pay taxes. Low taxes is biblical. That's what I want to get to, all right? That's a, how many here? By a raise, a, amen, 
In the word of God, America should suppress their tax system. Amen? That is not what it's talking about. But I could twist it there. Full of rich and royal people. Lydia's there. She has a home there. She's selling goods. And while she's there and living there, she makes a good deal of money here. And here it is. She is a worshiper of God. Now, when you see the word worshiper of God, and we're almost done here, I don't want you to think Christian. This is not a child of of Jesus Christ, all right, of God. This is a Gentile who turned from pagan adultery and believed in the God of Israel, the Old Testament God of Israel, which is truly God, but not his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, she's not a full proselyte. She doesn't follow the, the Old Testament law to a T. She is a fearer of God, a worshiper of the Old Testament God. Not a full Jewish convert. Now, this is not how I pictured things happening. And Paul begins to speak to this woman. And it says here that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things Paul was saying. Now, I want, what I want you to see here, above all else, is this. In church, if you believe this, affirm it with an amen. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Amen? It's not us. It's not us. No one would ever be saved if the Lord did not open their heart. This woman sat under the teaching of the Old Testament and prayed to the God of Israel... And nothing happened to our heart until God opened it. John chapter 6, verse 44. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see, and it's going to apply to me first and then to us as a whole. Salvation does not depend on the clever evangelism or cultural strategies. The skill or the preacher or his presentation. Paul's preaching did not do a single thing by itself. The Lord worked through it. I can't tell you how many times I have found this true in my own humble efforts to teach the Word of God. There are times when I get done teaching that I feel I've done so poorly that I am ready to fire myself. And then there's times when I think I nailed it. I think I may have told you this story, so I'll make it brief. Probably not. I'll draw it out. But I remember one time I was speaking at a place and it was just just people everywhere. Like thousands of people. And I thought, man, I am delivering this. And I was so proud of myself. Towards the end of the hour, a man walked down the center aisle. You remember this, baby? Baby, I'm sorry, honey. My, my equal, my spiritual equal. Okay. Um, and, 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 and human equal. I'm in trouble. All right. Came down the center aisle with his hands over his ears as I'm preaching through my abilities. And he gets to the front of the aisle and I'm preaching and he just goes, you're the worst preacher I've ever heard! And walked out. Clearly demon-possessed. Alright. But it's not the skill or the presentation. It is the sovereignty of our God. Now, I want to touch on one more thing, and then we'll draw the final application as we have dug through all of this historical and hermeneutical background here. I want to touch on one more thing that falls out of the heart of Paul here that I would like to communicate through a contemporary brief illustration, and here it is. There have been times, and I have been bothered by it, not by anyone here, where I have reached out to people to come and share the Word of God here at Trinity 
whether I'm going to be gone or I need a break and I invite them in to come teach because they are gifted teachers. And it's made me cringe at what some of the ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ require before they would even come and open the Word of God. In the name of maximizing their evangelistic effectiveness, as if their effectiveness is in their hands and not God's. I've reached out to people from camps and other places who are gifted in speaking to come speak at Trinity and I get an email that is a personal writer of everything they require before they can even come. Now, if a picture is worth a thousand words, what is this writer getting in the way of? What? Mm, an open tomb. These are literal things that I've read. I'm going to share them with you. And afterwards, I will put the names of these individuals up and their addresses. All right, no, I would never... I would never do that. It was primarily Pastor Jory when we called him. (laughs) I miss you, by the way. If I come, personal writer said, I have to have access to the missions board with full intentions of being financially supported on a monthly level. Any hotel that I stay in must be at least these stars, and I will not stay in a person's home. This is how large my honorarium must be in the minimum of seats your auditorium must be able to have so that I may uh, maximize my effectiveness. Here's what I'm trying to say. First of all, write that down. I don't know how to spell it, but write it down. Seriously, write it down. Here's my point, and then we're done. And we have baptisms tonight. By the way, what's going to happen to Lydia in a moment? She's going to get baptized. What would have happened if Paul had a writer in this culture? So why do I bring this up? The final thing I want us to see here is this. None of what is going on would fit into what we would call a master plan strategy to start a church. Some Gentile, half-proselyte woman at the river while Paul crosses all cultural and extra-biblical extra expectations to share the gospel that the, the majority of Jewish men would even talk to. This would have never happened with a writer. Paul could have said, I need at least ten men who are head of homes to teach the word of God. He could have said, I need at least one synagogue with a minimum of 50 seats in that synagogue. My accommodations cannot be a Gentile woman's home. These are the rules I have in order to maximize the gospel. And it is here, my friends. Here it is. What would have happened to the church in Philippi if Paul had this kind of heart? What would have happened if Paul artificially suppressed the value of women? What would have happened if he said, the slope is too slippery? What would have happened if the optics were too dangerous? I'll tell you what would have happened. Here it is. Absolutely nothing. Which is the greatest horror that could happen in a church. I want you to look at the screen here this morning. How often does this describe the American church today?
But because he obeyed and submitted, he zipped across the waters like a styrofoam cup in the wind, finds himself in front of some women at the river's edge, gives the gospel with no riders because it is not his gifts that contain the power of salvation. It is not his strategies that will storm the gates of hell, but rather the gospel of God and his sovereign omnipotent will. And little did he know that on that river's slippery slope, the conversion of a single Gentile woman will not only be the beginning of the church in Philippi, but but it will ultimately bring the imperial worship of Rome to its doom. Because Paul was more interested in being biblical than safe. He was more interested in being obedient than appropriate. And he was more interested in being the means of the gospel rather than the magistrate of it. This is not how he envisioned things would go. I'm going to close with one simple observation and it's to all of you. When, and to me, When was Lydia baptized? Talk to me, church. After she placed her faith in Jesus Christ. After placing her faith in Jesus Christ, where did she get baptized? Well, the Mishnah tells us, in a river deep enough to be immersed in. Let the text just speak. If you believe in Jesus Christ and have repented of your sin, turning away from your old life, which is not enough, turning towards God, if you have confessed your sin and believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose again and is returning again, and by the way, it's transforming your life. Because that's what belief looks like. Belief is not dormant. If you've done these things, here's the simple question with Lydia as our example, if we may. What should we do? Be baptized. On August 7th, Trinity will be meeting in a river just outside of town under the open sky in water deep enough to be immersed in in love and in truth it's time to obey Jesus stop negotiating you'll lose and you'll win if you follow it's time to obey Jesus and get baptized the way he commanded you don't know Jesus in this way don't leave here today shake my hand and say I want to know Jesus I don't I want to love Jesus I just don't want to know about him we would love to share you how to shed the culture of Christianity and love the Christ in it because that 
That's everything. There is no other thing beyond that. And if you haven't followed him in obedience, shake my hand, shake the hand of an elder, or anyone in this room and say, I want to be baptized. We'll take you to a river just outside, deep enough to be immersed in, and publicly identify with Jesus Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing. My prayer is that you alone are exalted. Our prayer is that you found pleasure. That all glory goes to you. Thank you for these people. They belong to you. Bless them, dear Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.